Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? Now, I like to start each of these studies with just a short recap to give you context. If you don't have context, it's hard to follow what's being said, all right? Context is everything. In hermeneutics, which is the uh, science of Bible interpretation, context is everything. Too often Christians will uh, do their devotions and just uh, yank a few verses out of context and try to apply them as standalone verses, and that often gets people into trouble. Because if you don't know the context, you're going to come up with often misinterpretations which lead to wrong applications. And so they'll bear with me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do think we need to get the context again. And uh, just to let you know, all the way through John's first epistle, he's really contrasting two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and then the kingdom of darkness. These kingdoms are ruled by two very different kings. The kingdom of light is ruled by the God of light, whom John tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, in him there is no darkness at all, darkness being a a reference to moral impurity or evil. God is completely pure, completely holy, and so on. Whereas the kingdom of darkness is ruled by the God of this world, the devil, who is the very personification of darkness and evil, a being who has no light in him at all. One kingdom is going to end. In fact, John tells us it's already passing away, while the other is an eternal kingdom that will never end. In fact, uh, it's already getting brighter. Uh, The more people receive Jesus as their Savior. Of course, John opened his gospel by telling us that Jesus, the true light, invaded a world of darkness. The darkness could not extinguish the light because evil and uh, error and lies, deception can never overcome truth, God's truth. And so Jesus came to be the light of the world. He handed that mantle over to his church before he went to the cross and said, Now you are the light of the world. Go into this world of darkness and shine forth. And so as we do, the more people, you know, Jesus said, talking about the things he did, but that his followers would do greater things than he did. You think, what greater things than Jesus did? I mean, he raised the dead. How are we going to do greater things than that? No, not greater in magnitude, greater in scope. When Jesus was on the earth, he was limited to one place at one time. He inhabited a physical body. And as such, he could only be in one place at a time. When he ascended back to the Father, the Spirit was poured out. Of course, the Spirit of God comes into every person who opens their heart to Christ. And the body of Christ has spread throughout the entire world. And as Christians have gone out and been a light and witness to the lost, as more people accept Christ, the light spreads. The light grows. The kingdom of God is growing. And so this kingdom is eternal and keeps growing and will continue to grow, even during the millennial kingdom, as people will be getting saved even during that time. In verse 8, a pivotal statement, John says again, A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, And the true light is already shining, just like we just talked about. Now, that statement, guys, becomes the theme for the next section in John's uh, epistle. Uh, As John is contrasting now the transitory nature of Satan's kingdom with the eternal nature of God's kingdom. And as John is contrasting these two kingdoms, he's contrasting them, but he's also in a roundabout way, he's challenging his readers 
to understand the choice that was before many of them, many of them, where they were playing games with their eternity. Uh, John, of course, was writing to Christians for the most part, but as any good pastor, uh, he um, realized that a lot of these churches that he was writing this epistle to had many people in them that thought they were Christians. You think that Calvary Chapel of Elk Grove doesn't have people who think they're saved, but they're not? Now, I don't know all of them. I have some uh, idea of some, but only God knows the heart. So every once in a while, of course, we want to, uh, you know, shake people up a little bit. Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher, said he felt it was his ministry to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Uh, sometimes we have to kind of rock the boat a little bit, challenge people, examine yourself, make sure you're in the faith, as Paul admonished us, right? If you, you examine yourself now, you won't be judged by the Lord someday, right? So uh, th this is important. John, of course, being a pastor himself, understood uh, that there were people in these churches he was writing to that weren't saved. Now, they thought they were saved, no doubt, but he wanted us to get to them. They're playing games with their eternity because they're just going through the motions. But uh, their hearts have not been really dealt with. And again, I think that John had in mind churchgoers when he wrote this epistle. Um, it's doubtful that he was targeting non-church going unbelievers, although I'm sure some unbelievers did wind up reading his epistles and probably got saved. Okay, But that wasn't the target audience, as they say. Okay, John's target audience was believers in these churches. But then, of course, um, he did know that there were some who were unbelievers, and I think he had those folks in mind, church-going unbelievers, when he wrote large portions of chapters 2 and 3, these folks, again, thought they were saved. And uh, so John has been kind of, um, in fact, as we've been studying John's epistle here, he's been pointing out the inconsistencies, hasn't he, of those who claim to be Christians, go to church and maintain a religious facade, and yet don't live lives that are consistent with those who are truly born again and have the Holy Spirit within them. First of all, he said true Christians want to keep God's commandments. So he's trying to challenge these people who think they're saved. And so he's been kind of challenging them with uh, these truths. First of all, true Christians want to keep God's commandments. This is a true test of legitimacy. Look at verses 3 and 4 of 1 John 2. Now by this we know that we know him, that we're saved, if we keep his commandments. And the idea is, on an ongoing basis. None of us are perfect in our obedience to God. But the general pattern of our life, if we're saved, should be obedience, for the most part, in what God has told us in His Word, right? So true Christians want to keep God's commandments. So John says, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, I'm saved, but does not keep His commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him or her. Secondly, true Christians love other Christians. Another mark of genuineness. Look at verse 9. He who says he is in the light, in other words, he's a Christian, and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Another test of genuineness. Does a person who claims to be a Christian love other Christians? And thirdly, true Christians no longer love the world. And so in verse 15, 
John said, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Contrasting those who love the world, which is a mark of unbelief, with those who want to do God's will, which is a mark of a true believer, one who desires with all their heart to obey God and will abide with him forever because they're, they're saved. Now, as we just said, John sees the world as divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of light ruled by God Almighty, and then the kingdom of darkness ruled by the devil. Furthermore, guys, John tells us that all mankind falls into two categories with regard to these two kings and their kingdoms. The whole world is either in one group or the other. Either they are children of God or they are children of the devil. John makes that very clear when we get into chapter 3 especially. I know that some people, especially in our culture today, would say, I'm not either. I don't believe in God. I don't have anything to do with the devil. Uh, I'm not a child of God or the devil. I'm neutral. Guess what? Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. All right? So, you know, by not accepting Christ, by default, you are still. You don't become when you reject Christ. You are. I was. We're all born rebels, uh, you know, under the devil's control. And, of course, when we give our heart to Christ, we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness, from the devil's control. We are, as the, as the Bible says, translated into the kingdom of God's love, his kingdom of light, and the spirit is inside of us, and so on. Uh, but either you're for me or Jesus said you're against me. Now, as John is revealing the warning signs of false Christians, that really is what he's trying to do as he is encouraging and instructing true believers uh, as he's revealing the warning signs of false Christians, he is challenging them. And we saw this last week in our study in verses 15 to 17. He is challenging these people who are not manifesting the, the characteristics of those who are truly born again. Going to church does not make you safe. We, we know that, okay? A lot of people think, well, I go to church. Great. So does the devil, by the way. I'm convinced the devil is in church more than any other person. Some of these churches, he's in the pulpit, okay? Uh, more than ever, I've seen it in my lifetime, okay? Deception in the church is rampant. Well, we're in the last days. And the Bible says in the last days there would be apostasy in the church. And because people would want their ears tickled and because pastors want big churches, they're going to want to tell people what they want to hear to build these big ministries. But in the reality, these churches are just overrun with unbelievers, okay? But John is challenging these people who think they're saved to rethink, to contemplate what they really love, what they're really loyal to. I mean, if they love the world more than God, if they're more loyal to the world than they are to God, well, not only are they probably not saved, and I say probably not because, you know, you have carnal Christians. I mean, you do have carnal Christians who are saved and yet are still very worldly. I wouldn't want to base my salvation on the hopes I'm just being worldly and I'm really a Christian because you know what? Nobody knows if you're going to live a worldly life. To me, it probably indicates your heart is not redeemed. And why wait till you stand before Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you, 
get your heart and life right with him right now. So John, you know, he knows that. And, and, and he probably, is like any pastor, loses sleep over those who go to church, profess faith in Christ, but really are not genuinely saved. And that haunts pastors who love the Lord. That people in our churches can hear the word of God week after week and not really be saved. That, that, that's troubling, to say the least, all right? But, uh, but John's trying to challenge him. What do you love more? What do you love more? Do you love God more than the world? You should if you're saved. Are you more loyal to God than you are to the things of this world? If not, you're probably not saved. But he also wants them to know, but you know what? You're making a terrible investment because you're investing your whole life in something, verse 17 tells us, is passing away. A person who devotes their whole life to building a kingdom on earth is making a terrible investment. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that a believer who loves the Lord can't have a prosperous business. I'm just saying, if that's your whole world, and that's what you're loyal to, and that's everything to you, well, there's a problem there. There's a problem, because these things are passing away. You know, Jesus himself warned those who followed him about the same thing when he said in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, he said, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here it is, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you value in life is going to have your heart. If you value God, really, He's precious to you. You value Him, your relationship with Him above everything else. That's where your heart's going to be. And that's where your loyalties are going to lie. If, on the other hand, you go to church, but really you value uh, making money and having a lot of stuff, that really is going to control your heart. And that's what you're going to be loyal to. Spiritual warfare, when we talked about that, is a battle for control of your heart. God wants to have your heart completely. The devil wants to have it so he can you know, get you to love the world and the things in the world to, to, uh, to stunt your growth, to neutralize your effectiveness, and so on. Again, guys, when John talks about the world passing away, actually the Greek is uh, in the process of disappearing. The world passing away, the Greek is in the process of disappearing. He isn't talking about you know the planet Earth, although... We just finished studying in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the earth will pass away at one point. Remember verse 10, 2 Peter 3 verse 10? But the day of the Lord, Peter tells us, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and both the earth and the works that are in it, which means all the treasures people have laid up, uh, is going to be completely burned up. But that's not what John has in mind in chapter 2, verse 17, when he says the world is passing away. He means the fallen, corrupt, demonic world system which Satan controls. His kingdom is passing away. Author Warren Worsby put it this way, said, and I quote, That statement would be challenged by many men today who are confident that the world, the, the system in which we live, is as permanent as anything can be. But the world is not permanent. The only sure thing about this world system is that it is not going to be here forever. One day the system will be gone, 
and the pleasant attractions within will be gone. All are passing away. What is going to last? Obviously, the kingdom of God. The only thing. In fact, the author of uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that at one point, God is going to shake everything physical that can be shaken until it all crumbles. You read the book of Revelation. At one point, there's, I think it's three very powerful earthquakes. One of them is so powerful, pretty much every building is destroyed. And Isaiah, and I think he's talking about this earthquake, says the earth is going to split. Uh, you know, it's like the idea is that people are putting their trust and everything in these earthly treasures and kingdoms. At one point, God is going to level it. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, and if you've invested your life in the physical you're going to be a complete loser. But if you invest your life in the spiritual, building God's kingdom, you will lose nothing. It will be there for you forever and the rewards of that, okay? Um, someone has said, okay, well, the world is passing away. Uh, forget the world. Uh, we're passing away. How should we be living in the light that, you know, we're all in the process of dying, really? Well, Peter goes on to tell us that very thing in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, when he says, therefore... Since all these things, all the physical, uh, will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Well, that's where he's actually he's answering his own question. We should be living a life that is uh, geared toward holiness, separation from the world, living for God's glory and, uh, and godliness and so on. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this present creation, the one that was corrupted by sin, by the fall, at one point the Lord is going to wipe it out and recreate everything so that the entire universe, and in particular the earth, will be recreated, pristine, uncorrupted by sin in the least, and that's where we're going to live, in an entirely redeemed creation. And we can't even imagine what that looks like. We don't know what the original creation really looked like. We know in the garden, the animals must have talked to Eve, because when the serpent started talking to her in chapter 3, she didn't shriek and run away saying, ah, talking snake, you know. She just, she just engaged the stone. You just, so it's like, you know, I don't know. Was it like, you know, a Dr. Doolittle situation where... People were just talking with the animals and uh, Adam and Eve. So we don't know what it's going to be like when God recreates everything, right? Uh, what kind of dimensionality we're going to even live in. Uh, wow, you know. But, uh, but again, and I want, to, I want to just hang on this just for another minute or two. Because John is talking about the two kingdoms, one eternal, one is passing away. Uh, you know, he wasn't the only one. Jesus Christ, of course, talked about this very thing as well. Turn to Luke chapter 12, because Jesus warned us about the transitory nature of this life, that it could be over at any moment, and how we should always be living with eternity in our hearts. And of course, you know this very well, but I'll read it to you. Luke 12, starting with verse 15. The Lord Jesus said to the audience, he was uh, the people that were listening to him, take heed and beware of covetousness. Now that is a strong lusting or desire for anything in this world. And God forbid that. He said, you are not to lust, covet, lust after your neighbor's wife or husband or 
animals or, you know, uh, maid servant, male servants, uh, female servants. You're not to lust or strongly desire anything that belongs to your neighbor because that leads to stealing. It leads to murder at times, to take what belongs to your uh, neighbor. As we said Sunday, coveting kind of flies under our moral radar, but it made God's top ten list of prohibitions because often it's at the heart of every other sin or a great number of them, okay? But Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, that one statement, if really taken to heart, would end a lot of the problems in people's lives who try to to gain more and more stuff and wealth and possessions and wind up spending themselves in the financial disaster or put so much problem or stress on their marriage, their marriage dissolves. It leads, of course, to all the crime and things, just coveting what the world has to offer. But a person's life does not consist in all the stuff they possess. That's not what life is all about. And then he gives this, uh, this example, this parable, okay? The, the principles in verse 15, now, now the, the parable, to emphasize the uh, principle. Uh, then he spoke of a, a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, bigger barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, the guy's talking to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? In other words, who's going to wind up getting all the things that you've spent your whole life acquiring? Remember the bumper sticker? Uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? A trip to hell? I don't know. You know, wins what? It's interesting that this guy never actually did what he planned on doing. This was his dream. I will tear down my little barns, build bigger barns, and then I will be able to store all my stuff, say to my soul, take it easy. You've got enough laid up for many years. He never saw any of that. That was his goal. But that night, he died. And Jesus said, you know, any person who lives for this life only and is totally unprepared for the life to come is a fool. A fool. Who lays up treasures for himself but is not rich toward God. And so as one author stated, and I quote, John is contrasting two ways of life, a life lived for eternity and a life lived for time. A worldly person lives for the pleasures of the flesh, but a dedicated Christian lives for the joys of the spirit. A worldly believer lives for what he can see, the lust of the eyes, but a spiritual believer lives for the unseen realities of God. A worldly-minded person lives for the pride of life, the vain glory that appeals to men. But a Christian who does the will of God lives for God's approval, and he abides with God forever. So verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. In Scripture, guys, the word hour can mean a 60-minute period of time, or it can mean a non-specific period of time. Remember what Jesus said to his uh, mother uh, in John 2? Uh, he said, Woman, my hour has not yet 
come because she wanted him to do something miraculous and he hadn't officially begun his ministry yet uh not talking about a 60 minute period of time but uh you know the time when his ministry would be officially launched in uh, chapter 4 verse 21 jesus said to the woman by the well of samaria woman believe me the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem worship the father so obviously not talking about a 60 minute period of time uh, but just a, an indeterminate uh, designation of time, all right? When John used the word hour here, he obviously had in mind, again, an indeterminate period of time, but he used the word hour because it communicates the idea of urgency, that time is growing short. Now, he couples the word hour with another word, last, last hour. And that term becomes an eschatological term eschatology is a word that means the study of last things it's a study of end times things what the bible talks about prophesies about that is coming in the last days and so john combines the two and um, he is actually using the term last hour as a reference to the last days which is the time just prior to jesus second coming that will be preceded First of all, by the coming of the Antichrist onto the world stage. So, of course, you have the Antichrist coming on the world scene, becoming a leader uh, over this one world government. And, of course, that will lead then eventually to the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his true kingdom. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest said, and I quote, The definite article is absent before the word hour. And the emphasis is not, therefore, upon the fact of a particular definite time, but upon the character of that particular definite time. Vincent says that John uses the word hour as marking a critical season. He says the dominant sense of the expression last days, and that's what John is talking about, he says last hour, uh, he's talking about the last days. In the New Testament, is that, uh, is that of a period of suffering and struggle uh, preceding a divine victory? Well, the world is going to be in great tribulation for seven years, or at least uh, half of that time. Uh, the last seven years starts out with tribulation and then morphs into great tribulation after the midpoint. And that will, of course, lead up to Jesus' return. So uh, you have a period of great tribulation preceding a time when Jesus comes and births the kingdom and there is peace. And he even said that. He likened it to a woman in labor who is in great travail, uh, and, of course, the closer she gets to the birth of the child, the more intense the pains and the frequency of the, of the uh, birth pangs until the child is born, then there is peace and joy. The same is going to be true with this world. It's going to go through one cataclysmic judgment after another, and they're going to be just rocking this world one after another before Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, he brings the kingdom, and there is peace and joy. And so we look forward to that. But that's what the, the, Kenneth Weiss is talking about, how this term, last hour, is, uh, is you know, indicative of these uh, end times prophecies with regard to, and it's an hour, not focusing on the duration, but on the intensity of what's going on in this period of time, which is, of course, judgment that leads up to Christ's return and so on. And again, guys, John underscores the importance and urgency of what he's communicating to his readers when he tells them, and all Christians, of course, it is the last hour. And of course, uh, as we just said, the definite article is really not there in the Greek. What John said is, it is last hour. Actually, 
the literal phrase reads, last hour it is. And the order of the words was chosen by John specifically because it um, makes the statement emphatic. It's an emphatic uh, expression. He's trying to add intensity to what he is saying. Uh, you know, not that we're just in the last hour, but uh, the last hour it is. So you better get your life right, is the idea. Stop laying up for yourself treasures on the earth. Look, uh, this present world system is about ready to collapse. Are you prepared? Are you laying up anything for eternity? Or is everything for this life? Because if it is, you're a fool. You're not rich toward God. You're only rich toward the world. And that's passing away, right? Now, of course, guys, the last hour refers to um, the present evil age. The present evil age which is one of only two ages talked about in Scripture. I'll, I'll read you three. Turn to Matthew 12. As long as we're talking about this, it's good to get our minds around what the Bible teaches about this subject. The last hour, as John refers to it, is he's talking about this present evil age, which is uh, one of only two ages talked about in Scripture. Uh, one, we read from Matthew 12, verse 32. Jesus said, if anyone, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. What does that mean? Go online and listen to the study out of Matthew because we don't have time to get into it. Uh, Mark 10, verse 30, talking about how that uh, God's people who live for him on this in this life, receive many blessings. Mark 10, verse 30, anyone who gives up houses and lands and riches to serve God, uh, they're going to receive a hundredfold. Now, in this, in this time, uh, houses and uh, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So he talks about this time, this age, and then eternal rewards in the age to come, eternal life. I'll give you one more. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 21, which talks about um, every name uh, that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You know, we're far above principalities and powers. Christ has been exalted and uh, given might and dominion. And every name uh, that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, Christ is supreme. He is uh, preeminent. All right, well, back to 1 John 2.18. Or again, John says, little children. Now, the word there is paideia, and uh, it's a word that's used of genuine children of God. Okay, so now he's addressing true Christians. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour, or that we're in the end times, the last days. When people hear the name Antichrist, they often assume because the prefix anti is thought to always mean against, that this coming world leader, dictator really, will be anti-Christ in the sense of anti-religion. In other words, they perceive that he is going to be the quintessential atheist leader, kind of like a communist dictator today, all right? who are completely atheistic. Uh, however, in the Greek, the prefix anti could also mean in place of. In place of. Not against, 
uh, but in place of. In other words, far from being anti-religion, the Bible teaches that the Antichrist will be very religious. So religious, in fact, that he will establish a new religion where he himself is worshipped as God. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. And let's just read verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Talking about the Antichrist, Paul said, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Well, that's a reference to the midpoint of the last seven years. And remember now, when this guy comes on the scene, Jesus said uh, before he went to the cross, I have come in my Father's name and you rejected me. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. Talking about the Antichrist, who when he comes, the Jewish people initially are going to think he's their Messiah. Why are they going to think that? Because he is going to bring peace to the Middle East and he's going to work a, a peace treaty with uh, the surrounding Muslim nations uh, whereby the Jews will be allowed to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Now anybody who can do that has uh, got to be an incredible leader, right? And so initially they believe he is their Messiah, finally come. He's bringing a, a kingdom of peace to the earth, right? But Paul said when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Talking about this false sense of security and peace, the Antichrist will lull the world into. And of course, he uses uh, the Jewish people and he comes across as a man of religion. You know, Hitler, when he first came to power, uh, he was very pro-religion. He tried to work with all religions because he needed them to get into power. But as soon as he got into power, he outlawed the true church and established the Reich Church, where he was the leader. Fuhrer means leader, you know. Uh, Heil Hitler, hail Hitler. They were hailing him as some kind of a god. He was a prototype, I'm convinced, of the Antichrist when he comes Initially, he will use religion because he needs these folks to get into power. Once he gets into power, though, he'll become a dictator. And you can read of what happens to the uh, world church. He's very instrumental in helping these nations to, to come together uh, in a one world church. The, the false prophet will head up that. But at one point, and I believe, and I'm getting way off the subject, I'm sorry. Uh, you can check out the study in Revelation 17. Uh, because this woman rides this beast, right? And um, the beast is the Antichrist. And the woman is organized religion, this world church. And initially she's riding this beast. The beast allows her to dominate and act like, you know, she's in control. But at one point he turns on her. He doesn't need her anymore. He's got all the power he needs. So he turns on the world church and he wipes it out and then he establishes himself as God of a new religion and demands to be worshipped as God. And that's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2 and other places. In fact, you can turn to Revelation 13. Of course, that's what happened if you, it happens when you read uh, Matthew 24 and uh, at the midpoint. Um, he goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He, he allows them to build their temple on the Temple Mount. And uh, wow, the Jewish people are like, this is it. He's the guy. 
But uh, at the midpoint, he goes into the rebuilt temple and uh, stops the daily sacrifices and oblations to God to cease. He puts his own image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God. Jesus said, when you see that happen, uh, so I'm sure CNN will be all over that, uh, when you, you know, promoting this guy. Uh, <laughs> when you see that happen, don't even go back into your house to get clothes. Run to the, into the wilderness as fast as you can go. Because persecution will arise at that time like the Jewish people have never seen in their history up until that day. But um, Revelation 13 talks about now how that the Antichrist is being worshipped. And the false prophet who uh, was the head of the world church now becomes the head of this new religious uh, religion. And he says, so they worship, the verse 4, they worship the dragon who gave authority to the, to the beast. The dragon is Satan. Interesting period of time. A total inversion. The Bible talks about a nation that's about ready to be judged calls evil good and good evil. You have a complete inversion where at this time the dragon, Satan, is being worshipped as God and all his followers are looked upon as the true church, which makes Christians in the tribulation period, those who get saved during the tribulation period, they're the outlaws. They're the Satan worshippers we would think of today. They're evil. Because uh, they oppose the dragon and the beast, the Antichrist. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That term. Dwell on the earth, or earth dwellers, appears, I think, like 11 times in the book of Revelation. And it talks about those folks who are totally committed to this world. This is their home. They're, they're not Christians. They don't want to be Christians. They are total earth dwellers. The very people John is trying to appeal to not to be. Because the world's passing away. Why would you want to devote your whole life to something that's passing away, right? Serve God. Love God. Uh, build his kingdom you'll never be a loser all right you know he he talks about uh, john does about the uh, the antichrist you have heard that the antichrist is coming and it's interesting that uh, as we study daniel of the dozen or so titles this world leader is referred to by in scripture antichrist isn't one of them antichrist isn't one of them i mean he goes by a lot of little horn big mouth i mean there's a lot of titles for this guy but we call him the Antichrist. They say, well, John does too. Well, okay, uh, you know, it, it does seem that John does call this coming world leader uh, by the name Antichrist or the title. Uh, but some make the, the, the claim that, look, um, we could actually make the case that John was using the term in a more generic or general sense to describe any false teachers, one in particular, but any false teachers John could have in mind. Who, and I think this is the, the key, who started in the church and went out into the world preaching, listen, another Jesus and a different gospel. We're not going to get to verse 19 tonight, but he makes reference to these people. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had really been one of us, true Christians, they would have remained with us. But because they have gone out from us, it proves they were never really genuine. We'll study that in detail next time. But just so you see it here, all right? John has in mind antichrist in the sense that these false teachers, uh, probably most of them started off in the church calling themselves Christians. 
but then got involved in some false teaching where they replaced Christ, the true Christ, with a false Christ, anti, in place of. Okay? John goes on to tell us that many antichrists had already come into the world in his day. He said, by which we know that it is the last hour. Or in other words, we're in the last days. Look, we know from Scripture that the last days officially began with Jesus' first coming. Read Hebrews 1, verse 2. The last days officially began with Jesus' first coming and will conclude with his second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. The uh, term many antichrists that John refers to are those false teachers that, again, use Christ and Christianity as a platform from which to teach their twisted anti-Christ false doctrine. You know, Paul talked about these men in 2 Corinthians 11. Why don't you turn there? You know, if you can't beat them, Satan joins them. Sure, he's got a lot of false religions and cults that he has started throughout the centuries and around the world today. But he wants those who go to Christian churches, he, he wants them, he wants to keep them, that they go to hell. And so he can't beat the church. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. So he joins the church, as we talked about earlier. He has his ministers looking like true ministers of Christ, even disguising themselves in John's day as apostles of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, he's talking to the Corinthians who had no discernment, okay? They had all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but were lacking discernment, all right? And he, 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 he kind of chides them for happily putting up with uh, with these false teachers who go, go around your church uh, preaching a different Jesus than the one we preach, a different kind of spirit than the one you received, a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. So they're teaching the gospel and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but it's the cults will use the same terminology, but they define the words differently than what we do. They talk about Jesus. Mormons talk about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses talk about Jesus. But the Jesus that they present is the brother of Lucifer, you know, the creation of God, not God Almighty, but a creation of God. That's not our Jesus. That's another Jesus. And, of course, another Jesus can only lead to a different or corrupt gospel, okay? And Paul's really coming down on these believers for being so gullible and so undiscerning. Jump to verse 13. These... Um, these, these teachers, he said, are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Their day is coming. Peter talked about that, Second Peter 2, verses 1 to 3. He said, uh, their day is coming. You know, they, they might be uh, running large ministries and driving, you know, fancy cars and have their own private jets, but their day is coming. And uh, they're going to stand before God and give an account and uh, so on. Now, because John said that many antichrists had already come into the world, guys, and I want to focus on this for the remainder of our time, because I saw something in this today as I was studying that I thought, well, you know, we, we really kind of should bring out, okay? And um, when John 
talks about the Antichrist who is coming. And now that many Antichrists have already come, there are those who believe that John is teaching that the church would see the coming of the Antichrist, and therefore that John was teaching the church would be going into the tribulation period. Look once again at what John is saying in verse 18. He says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist, the Antichrist, is coming, okay, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. John taught them the Antichrist is coming. Not that Christians would see him, but we know he's coming. But many false teachers, Antichrist to a lesser degree, we might say forerunners to the world leader we call the Antichrist, have come already and will continue to come into the world. In fact, the coming of these false teachers and prophets will escalate. The closer we get to Christ's return, these false teachers, prophets, Christ, will escalate leading up to the coming of the Antichrist, the Antichrist, this world leader. Uh, and of course, his coming will precede the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, so these, all these Antichrists and false teachers is going to ramp up the closer we get to Christ's return. It, it signifies that uh, Jesus is coming very soon. And Jesus himself told us, in fact, turn to Matthew 24. Jesus warned us about these false teachers. He said in Matthew 24, you can read the whole context on your own, but he told, and this was a private briefing between himself and I think Peter, James, and John uh, on the Mount of, uh, Mount of Olives, but he said, uh, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So take heed. It's interesting that when Jesus, because they wanted to know what would be the signs of his coming in the end of the age. See, and we've talked about it again, so bear with me. When the Jewish people talked about this present age, they defined it as the time from man's fall in the garden until the coming of Christ, the Messiah, who would institute a new age, the kingdom age. Okay? So in the Jews' mind, they always wanted to know, well, if they were looking to Jesus to establish the kingdom. But at one point, he says, you're not going to see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, ending chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel. So it's obvious he's not going to establish the kingdom, at least not right now. So he leaves the temple area, goes across the Kidron Valley, uh, up to the Mount of Olives, where he often spent the whole night in prayer and probably sat down by one of the fig trees there. And Peter, James, and John came and uh, asked him, well, Lord, can you tell us what will be the signs of your coming? Because we want the kingdom. And the end of this present evil age as you then bring the kingdom age. So he gives them this little briefing to tell them what's coming, right? And of course, that's a blessing to all of us because we know what's coming now too. And he, it's interesting, the first thing he says, take heed that nobody what? Deceives you. This is going to be a time of unprecedented worldwide deception. Verse 5, for many will come in my name, you know, claiming to represent me, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. Guys, those are the same words for Jesus' signs and wonders. These are not going to be sleight of hands uh, illusion. This is gonna, they're going to have real supernatural power. It's what Paul called lying signs and wonders. In other words, they're genuine miracles, but are designed to uh, send people down uh, a, a path of error, away from the true God, the true Christ, and so on. Now, Jesus is warning us, you know, uh, if somebody comes and says, look, here's the Christ, we found him, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. When God tells us something in advance, what do we call it? Prophecy. Prophecy. Over one quarter of the Bible is full of prophecy, where God is telling us things that are going to happen. Now, many of those have already been fulfilled, especially with Christ's first coming. If prophecy keeps us on guard and keeps us from being deceived because God is telling us in advance what's going to happen and the deception the devil is going to try to perpetrate, if we know what he's going to be up to, we can, you know, be aware and be on guard and so on. So what does the devil do? He's worked in the hearts of pastors today who no longer teach prophecy. They claim that, in one of the more famous ones, claims that we shouldn't be wasting our time on pie-in-the-sky stuff. We should be talking about what is happening in the world right now. Christians need to focus on this life and helping people now rather than waiting for you know Jesus to return and looking for signs. Well, that sounds spiritual, but Jesus told us to look. He gave numerous parables saying a true servant, a good servant, is vigilant. You can't be vigilant unless you're knowing what you're looking for, which means prophecy. So the devil has caused a lot of pastors to stop teaching prophecy. They think they're doing a tr- they're just being really pragmatic and they're really, you know, but they are keeping their people from knowing what's coming. And because people are not being taught prophecy, they're going to be susceptible to the deception when it comes. Jesus, yeah, here's what's coming. If I didn't tell you, you'd be deceived. That's why I've told you beforehand. I prophesied. We must embrace prophecy, okay? Look, how do we know the church won't see the coming of the Antichrist? Because I don't believe we're going to. How do we know the church won't see the coming of the Antichrist and therefore will not be going into the tribulation period? Because as we just said, there are many who read this and go, well, John's talking about the coming of the Antichrist. He obviously has taught these people that the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have already come. So that means that John told people, Christians, that they would be around to see the real Antichrist, which means their church is going into the tribulation period. I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that's what John was saying. All right, there are those who do. How do we know? How do we know we won't see, as the church of Jesus Christ right now, we won't see, I, I believe the Antichrist is alive right now. I'm just saying we're not going to see him rise to power as the world leader the Bible talks about he will become. How do we know we won't see him? How do we know we're not going to be going into the tribulation period? I'm pre-trib. I believe the rapture takes place before the tribulation period officially begins. 
Turn to Revelation chapter 4. It won't be that long before we actually study this in detail when we get to Revelation. But um, I'm going to give you a little preview, okay? Because we might get raptured tomorrow or tonight. Uh, so I'm going to make sure you have a little, little bit of working knowledge, all right? So uh, Revelation chapter 4. As we come to Revelation chapter 4, we come to the final section of the book of Revelation according to the outline of the book, which Jesus himself gave to us in chapter 1, verse 19. So turn back there real quickly. In chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus Christ outlined the book of Revelation. It falls into three parts. I'll read the verse. The Lord Jesus told John to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after the Greek is, after these things. Write the things which you have seen. That would be the vision of chapter 1 of Jesus Christ. And the things which are. Well, John was living in the first century. Uh, at that time, of course, the church age had started. And so in chapters 2 and 3, these deal with seven letters to seven churches, which encompass all of church history, really. Yeah, literal churches in Asia Minor. Uh, modern-day Turkey, but uh, in a spiritual sense, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Revelation, they encompass all of church history. So write the things which are in John's day and including our day. The things which are speak of the church age. And then the things which will take place after this, the Greek is metatauta, after these things. After what things? After the things concerning the church, or listen, after the church age comes to a close. So you have the vision in chapter 1 of Jesus Christ. Write the things which are the church age. And then the things will take place after these things or after the church age closes. The Bible teaches that the church age started on Pentecost, Acts 2, right? The church age started on Pentecost and will end at the rapture. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 4. After these things I looked, John said, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after these things. Verse 1 of chapter 4, guys, opens and closes with the Greek phrase metatauta that's a very important phrase it's a clear demarcation of something that is over and something now that is starting okay it opens and closes verse one with the greek phrase metatauta after these things which which connects chapter four verse one with chapter one verse 19 and tells us in chapter four verse one we have now entered or the world has now entered into the final section of the book of Revelation, which covers chapters 4 through 22. So that's the bulk of the book, isn't it? Okay? Uh, the vision of Christ, chapter 1. Things of the church, chapters 2 and 3. The bulk of the book, from chapter 4 through chapter 22, speaks of things that were going to happen after the church age is done. Look, since chapter 4, and don't lose me, since chapter 4 cannot begin until after the church age closes, and the church age doesn't officially close until the rapture, 
and we see evidence of the rapture of the church somewhere between the end or the close of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Because if one ends, the church age, chapter 4 begins the final section, the things that will happen after the church age. We should see a reference to the rapture because I believe that the rapture happens before the final, final stage, which is the tribulation period, basically. Okay? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Yeah, we, should, we, we see indications of the rapture at the beginning of chapter 4. Sure. First of all, uh, when we read verse 1 of Revelation 4, it says again, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, guys, that takes us back to something Jesus promised the true and faithful church of Philadelphia. I believe a reference to the evangelical church. If you look at Revelation 3, verse 8, Jesus said to this faithful church, I know your works. See, I have set before you what? An open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also, listen, will keep you from the hour of trial, the uh, living translation says, from the great tribulation, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus promised his true last day's church that he would keep her from, the Greek is deliver her out of, the judgment or the great tribulation that is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers. So this open door that John talks about in chapter 4, verse 1, could very well be a door of deliverance. A door of deliverance in the sense that God is delivering his people off of the earth before his judgment falls. The rapture is really God evacuating his church off the earth because he's about to pour his wrath out. Peter says, we don't need to be, to be judged with the wicked. We're saved. We've accepted Christ. The tribulation judgment is against those who have rejected Christ. All right? Why should we be punished with the wicked? Because we're Christians. We're children of God. And so God does not punish the righteous with the wicked, but instead raptures or evacuates his people off the earth before he begins to pour out his judgments. This door John speaks about, I believe is a door of deliverance. Turn to Isaiah 26. Interesting language Isaiah uses. And I believe he's talking about this very evacuation. Isaiah 26, starting with verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. This is Isaiah talking, okay, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Awake and sing, you who dwell in, in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. There's a resurrection in view here. Come, my people. Enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, listen, until the indignation or the judgment of God is passed. God is not going to punish his people with the wicked. I mean, you have a judgment that's poured out against the wicked. Why would God punish his people? So he, he takes them off the earth. He resurrects the dead. That's what the rapture is. It's a resurrection of those who have died in Christ. And then we who are alive and remain are caught up into the air to meet the Lord in the sky, and so on. 
Become my people, verse 20. Enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. They're going to be resurrected. Turn to John 14. This is in the upper room the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus is talking to his closest men. John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house, are he opened chapter 14 by saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions. The Greek is dwelling places. We're going to live right there in the Father's house next to him, right? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. What's in view here? There's the rapture. The rapture. Secondly, John says, though, in Revelation 4, verse 1, And the first voice I heard, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Now, guys, I don't know about you, but that sounds like rapture language to me. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. First voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here. Again, sounds like rapture language to me. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Paul said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Rapture. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Actually, harpazo in the Greek, in the Latin Vulgate, rapio, from which we get the word rapture from. So we who are alive and remain on the earth shall be caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. Paul talking about this same event. The rapture says, In a moment, in, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be change yes we will receive our glorified bodies i want you to notice this guys okay because we're not going to belabor this okay it's not my intention tonight up until chapter four of the book of revelation the church has been mentioned listen 19 times in those three chapters the church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of revelation but then disappears from the earth and is not seen again in the book until we see her as the bride of Christ in chapter 19 returning from heaven with her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to the earth so that he might establish his kingdom. First three chapters, she's mentioned 19 times. Gone after that. We don't see her again until chapter 19 when Jesus returns with his bride, his church, to establish his kingdom upon the earth so the scene now shifts to heaven in chapter 4 revelation where the church listen once seated with christ in heavenly places spiritually remember what paul said ephesians 2 6 is now seen safely seated with christ in heaven literally before the judgment of god is poured out on this christ rejecting world where is the church he's in heaven when are the judgments of God poured out? Not until chapter 6. Let's look at chapter 5. I want to read you the first seven verses. I'm going somewhere, so hang in there. 
See, you're taking a long time to get there. Well, just be patient. All right, so the church is now raptured in heaven. Revelation 5, verses 1 to 7, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the thrones, be God the Father, a scroll written inside and out, and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been what? He's going to bear the marks of his crucifixion uh, on into eternity. That in ages yet to come, we might remember and know the exceeding riches of his love and grace toward us. Every time we look at Jesus, we will see what his great love led him to suffer for us. I looked, and there was a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, the Father's right hand, who sat on the throne. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. In the book of Revelation, there are recorded the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and then the final seven bowl judgments. All of these judgments are what the Bible calls the wrath of God, the judgments of God which he pours out on the earth dwellers. And yet, with regard to the body of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to see, all right, and we'll close. Will the church see the Antichrist? I don't believe so. Why do I feel that way? Because the Bible is very clear that God will not allow his church to be on the earth when he begins to pour out his judgments, his wrath. He hasn't appointed us to wrath. These seals that start off God's judgment are all a part of his wrath, being his judgments. Every seal that is broken unleashes a different judgment of God upon the earth. The very first seal that's broken, all of a sudden... A guy riding a white horse dressed in white comes to the earth carrying a bow, right? Many commentators say, but that's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. Why do we know? Because you know, he's wearing white. Good guys always wear white. Yeah, unless they're bad guys trying to look like good guys. You mean to tell me Jesus Christ in heaven breaks the first seal, puts the scroll down, races to the earth, jumps on a horse, and becomes the first rider or the first, what, judgment? This is the Antichrist. When Jesus Christ is pictured, he's always, what weapon is he always carrying? A sword. This guy's got a bow, okay? The Antichrist, guys, is the first judgment of the tribulation period. 
People have rejected God's kingdom. What do you think John's talking about? Two kingdoms. Don't love the world. It's passing away. This is the ultimate climactic scenario where people love the world, love the world's man. The devil gives them the Antichrist. I mean, you don't want God ruling over your life? What do you want? God, God will let you have whatever leader you want. The world rejected Jesus Christ. Another has come in his own name. They're going to receive him, the Antichrist. So the Antichrist becomes the first judgment of God during the tribulation period. He starts the whole thing rolling. And if he's the first judgment of God's wrath poured out in this world, and we're not appointed to see wrath, the church can't be here to see the Antichrist. I hope I've showed you that from looking at chapters 2 and 3, the things of the church, the church age, that comes to a close. Chapter 4, we see the tr hear the trumpet, uh, the voice come up here, and all the door opened in heaven, a, a doorway of escape. And, and all of a sudden now the church, I believe, John signifies the church, is in heaven, standing around the throne, before the first seal is ever broken, before the first judgment is ever poured out. We're up in heaven. We have not been appointed to wrath. Of course, when the Antichrist comes, the first thing he's going to do, and you can read about this in Daniel 9, verse 27, he is going to sign a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. And we believe uh, in that peace treaty, part of the uh, stipulation will be that Israel can go ahead and rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Now, of course, the Temple Mount is controlled by Muslims. And um, I think it was Moshe Dayan, who as soon as they conquered that whole area uh, in the 67 uh, war, because he didn't want a, a big war to start and, and escalate with the Mo he gave them control of the Temple Mount. And that was all in the providence of God. And the Jews have wanted to build their temple on the Temple Mount. Many Jews believe that the site of the temple uh, is where the Dome of the Rock is. So if you're going to rebuild the temple, you're going to have to destroy the Dome of the Rock to do it. You want a holy war that's going to end all holy wars? Go ahead and try to touch one stone on the Dome of the Rock, which is a shrine, not a mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is just right there, too. That's the mosque. This is a shrine, Dome of the Rock shrine. The Antichrist, somehow, he's got demonic abilities, convinces the Muslims, somehow, to allow Israel to rebuild their temple to the north of that Dome of the Rock. Now, there are a lot of archaeologists in Israel who believe that the temple actually stood, the Holy of Holies stood, where a little shrine today is called the Dome of the Spirits. You can Google that and look at it. So, the Antichrist somehow convinces the Muslims to let Israel rebuild their temple to the north of the Dome of the Rock. It's interesting because in Revelation chapter 11, John sees a vision of the rebuilt temple, and God gives him a measuring reed and tells him to measure all the, you know, the temple. He gets into the outer court, and God says, don't measure that. It's profaned. It's been given over to the Gentiles. Because I believe that's where the Dome of the Rock sits. So the Antichrist is going to sign this peace treaty with Israel. They're going to think this guy is their Messiah and that he has come to bring the kingdom. Of course, there's peace. Who but the Messiah can bring peace between the Muslims and the Jews? 
this guy, he's got to be the Messiah. But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. They will realize they have been deceived. And especially when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple, causes the daily sacrifice and oblations to cease to the true God, and sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God. Jesus said, when you see that happen, run. Run down to the wilderness. I believe to the rock city of Petra and take refuge. Because there's going to be tribulation against the Jewish people like you've never seen. I'll just say one last thing. I was on the radio uh, a couple of years ago uh, doing a live, it was a, a live call-in show. And uh, I was on with a couple other pastors. And I had been talking about the fact that the church would not see the tribulation period. And just for all the reasons I've just explained to you. And we had a gentleman call, and he was pretty upset. You know, he was very upset with me. And said, Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. How can you say the church will not see tribulation? I said, sir, you have to understand something. There's a difference between the tribulation of God against the world and then the tribulation of the world against the people of God. In the world, as Christians, we're always going to be persecuted. We're always going to have tribulation. That is man persecuting God's people. That's different from the great tribulation where God pours his judgment upon this Christ-rejecting world. We won't see that because we don't have to be punished with the wicked. So, you know, a lot of very sweet, godly Christians who, who read something like what Jesus said in the world, you have tribulation, and say, well, the church has got to go through the tribulation. Uh, no. No. And we can talk more uh, if you like afterward. Okay. Uh, but uh, all right. Uh, spent a little extra time on these two verses, and we'll move. In. I'll tell you, verse 19 uh, is also very pivotal. And so we'll look at that, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It's truth. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have, Lord, in your word, told us things that were going to happen so that these things wouldn't catch us off guard. But, uh, Lord, we uh, have been commanded to be vigilant, watchful, uh, because as we see these things happen, we are to look up. Our redemption is drawing ever closer. And, Lord, we can see that everything is aligning according to your prophecies in your word. Nations are aligning. Uh, events are aligning. Technology has come to a place where, you know, the whole world can, uh, Antichrist can issue a number and everyone can be tracked by that number before the advent of computers. And th that would have been impossible. So, Lord, we thank you that we are living in very exciting times. Give us grace, Lord, to be watchful, vigilant, and to know your word, and especially the prophecies of your word, Lord, that we are not in darkness so that these things overtake us as a thief. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.